And good evening. I'm Luke Hunt, and this is a podcast for The Diplomat. With me is Liam Cochran, who's a senior journalist and has kicked around Southeast Asia and beyond for many years. He uh, was a, an extraordinary contributor during the uh, Thai rescue scenario uh, in Thailand several months ago, and he's got a new book coming out on what happened, how it happened, and it should be in the bookshelves by Christmas. Liam, welcome. Thanks very much, Luke. First up, it all seemed like a fairly hopeless situation for the boys who were trapped underground. Uh, walk me through it. How did you find the whole scenario with the international media there mm-hmm. and, uh, and the rights of the kids and how, the, how, they, and how they'd eventually cope after they were rescued? So I went up to uh, the Tamlawan Cave in the northernmost part of northern Thailand, mountainous area. I went up there for ABC with uh, my colleague Jum and uh, cameraman David Leland and uh, we were there to, to report the story and by that stage it was, it had been going on for a while, been going for more than a week by then but, but I'd been off uh, with David in, in Myanmar shooting a completely different story. So. In a way, we, were, um, we got there just in time, really. We arrived on the morning of the 2nd of July, uh, and later, much later in that evening, was when the boys were found deep inside the cave. So we, for, for once, we got the timing right, Luke, and uh, got there just in time. Doesn't uh, always happen. It does not always happen, but uh, we lucked out on that one. So there was already a quite established setup at the, the staging area in front of the cave when we arrived, and that was, just to paint you a picture of getting there, uh, I mean, once you sort of fly to Chiang Rai, it's about an hour's drive um, almost to, to Mae Sai on the, the, the Myanmar border. Um, you need to get dropped off at the bottom of the hill and then there was a shuttle system to get up to the cave because there was just so much traffic. Um, and that's one of the things that they found out in doing some sort of rehearsal drills that basically there was traffic jams and they, if they got these kids out, then they were going to get stuck in traffic. Um, so the, we had to get up there by a, a, a shuttle uh, and then walk the last sort of 500 metres up to this staging area. And, uh, and that was quite a sight. It was, it was sort of like a, a tent city. Um, there were on one side a big row of marquees with um, the, the active rescuers uh, operational areas. So there was the Thai Navy SEALs, the Americans, the Australian Federal Police, uh, Chinese. There was a, a range of rescuers who were involved there, there was uh, already hundreds of media, um, a lot of Thai media, uh, but also international media at that stage. And then there was all of the support network who was looking after us all. Uh, and that was this incredible uh, collection of volunteers cooking, uh, cleaning up, picking up trash. It was, it was an amazing scene. I can talk more about the volunteer stuff later on, but it was right. already quite an impressive scene. How, how was the politics among the people there? Uh, as most journalists know, when you get on a big job like that, um, people aren't always kind to each other, they're competitive. The authorities had to look after, obviously, finding the children alive was um, the, the goal, but many, there were many people there who had different ideas about how that was best done. How did, how did you find the politics of it all? While I was there, the, the atmosphere was quite remarkably cooperative. And as you say, especially amongst the media, just as the, using that as a launching point, you know, it's often very competitive, everyone's sort of trying to edge each other out for a story. In this case, we were all sort of on the same playing field. We're all getting solid information twice a day from a press conference. 
in between that, a few snippets, maybe if we could talk to a diver or someone had a you know, cousin brother in the army or something like that. But um, you know, the, we were all sort of reporting the same stuff. And because of the nature of the story, there was this sort of camaraderie. And, and also I should point out that it had been raining for you know, the best part of a week. So the entire area was completely covered in mud. Like we're talking 10, 20 centimeter deep Total bog. Sea of caramel mud. Everyone was wearing gumboots. Um, and, and, and it was raining, it was unpleasant, blah, blah, and it's hot, of course. So, you know, under those uh, conditions, everyone kind of banded together. Uh, you know, and, and the essential thing for us was, you know, getting a, getting a plastic chair so we could get our stuff up off the mud. And in general, people were really cooperative, very, uh, uh, you know, shared, shared information and facilities and all that sort of stuff. It was, it was really great. Um, in terms of so going wider than that, you know, there, were, there were definitely politics involved behind the scenes. At the time, I knew almost nothing about that. Right. There, there, were, there were tensions between the divers, there were tensions in, within the decision-making process, within you know, the, the Thai military was running it, but then the Thai government was involved, uh, the king was overseeing the whole operation from afar, uh, and then there were all these foreign experts who'd come in that the Thais had to manage. They had to work out who was who, who had the skills, who had what skills, who could be trusted. Uh, it was an unbelievably complicated rescue. Possibly the, the, the most complicated and, and difficult and risky rescue in, in living memory. Right. Um, at any point, did you think the children would not make it out alive? I mean, I, I think a lot of people did. Well, when we arrived, I... I must admit, I, I was sort of bracing for a pretty grim story. You know, right. By that stage, the kids had been in for in, inside the cave for 10 days. 10 days. We thought at it's the a time, long time... It's a very long time. We thought at the time they might have had a little bit of food, like some chips and lollies and snacks and stuff. It turned out they had absolutely no food whatsoever. Right. Um, so, you know, 10 days, no food, that's not a great scenario. And, you know, obviously there was a lot of optimism and the authorities were still very optimistic, that, you know, at least publicly saying optimistic that they, uh, they, they, they thought the kids would still be alive and the coach, Coach Eck. Um, but it was by no means certain. And so when, on the evening when we arrived, that the news came through that, that they'd been found, it was like we were stunned. Everyone was stunned. Right. It was, it was, we didn't know that that's how it was going to go. So there was this amazing rush of adrenaline and, and enthusiasm to go, okay, the story has completely changed. Right. And then it probably took 24 hours to, for it to really sink in how difficult it was going to be to get them out. And then it took a long time. I mean, I remember I was in Bangkok at the time. I think it was, uh, might have been a Sunday evening when uh, the first of the boys started to, pick, to appear. And across the streets in Bangkok, people were... Uh, holding up two finger V for victory sign mm. and uh, people were smiling at each other mm. and talking to complete strangers and passing along the news as if it was like, like they were running home to school and speaking to their mum about what happened that day. Mm. It was really quite something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was one of the quite extraordinary things about this story is that it, it, it united people in a way that I've never seen before. Um, you know, and, and I say that as a, you know, a, a journalist who's, you know, suitably jaded and cynical about things, but this, this, this was a story that didn't have that cynicism because of the, the fact that it was, it was vulnerable kids inside this cave, sort of this miraculous rescue, 
going on. And that was very much what, what you saw and felt in Bangkok was very much happening up there, as you can imagine. And, and not untimely either, given the uh, disruptions to uh, social cohesion in this country that's occurred over the last few years. Absolutely, uh, yeah. I mean, Thailand has been uh, four years uh, under a military junta, um, which has sort of put a lid on the political problems and the, and the divisions within society. Um, but they're by no means resolved. No, so, no one was asking the kids what colour shirt they were wearing. Absolutely not. No, <laughs> no. I mean, most of them had red shirts on. But anyway, we won't, we won't go down that. That yeah, was only no. because of their soccer team uh, uh, that they were playing for before they went in. But that was, and that was not just in Thailand. You know, that was around the world. People were glued to their TVs and their smartphones. Right. And uh, I had my family members, you know, constantly demanding fresh information and updates uh, about what was going on, what was really going on. They were. The they were following it everywhere in the world. Yep. It was amazing, you know. And remember that this was a time when the, the World Cup was going on. So there was this, this focus on football teams elsewhere. Uh, Russia, I think they were. And, um, but, but the whole world was kind of fixated on this junior soccer team from Northern Thailand that no one had ever heard of before then. Um, tell me about the book. Uh, there's a, I understand there's a couple of them, uh, more than a couple, uh, being penned by people who were there. Uh, congratulations, I've actually read a little bit of the little bit of the start it's yet to be published but what I've seen it reads very well uh, how did that come about well it came about from a, an approach from HarperCollins in Australia they got in touch with me while I was up at the cave and said hey what do you think would you like to write a book about this and uh, I said yeah that sounds like a great idea um, and HarperCollins Australia has a, a, an ongoing relationship with uh, ABC books so that was kind of a natural fit and it made it easy for me to get uh, some time off, off my general duties at ABC to, to write the thing. And from there, uh, there was, you know, obviously we stayed and we, we reported this fabulous rescue, this incredible rescue, this kind of fairy tale story and the, uh, the aftermath of it with the boys fronting up at a press conference and sort of being, you know, delivered to the world. Um, and after that, I took, uh, it turned out to be seven weeks off to research and, and write the first draft of the book and just went back to, to scratch, had a big list of people that I wanted to talk to, all the key players um, who were involved in all the various aspects of it, the, the diving, the military, the government, the, uh, the, the, the boys themselves obviously was the key thing, um, and just worked with a, an incredible uh, group of Thai producers and researchers, four different right. people. Oh, that, that's what I was going to ask next, mm. next, actually, because it's a, it's a lot of words to... Uh, get out there quick mm. and uh, all the books are being pitched for Christmas mm. and I, I, I have my doubts over whether some will actually get to the printers in time but you, you, you have achieved that and um, uh, the, re yeah, the researchers um, and editors no doubt have helped. Massively, yeah. I, I definitely couldn't have done it without, in particular, the, the Thai researchers I worked with who, who all kind of played different roles. Uh, so, you know, my colleague Jum was helped me sort of shape who I should talk to and, and, and line up interviews and fact check things. Uh, I worked with a great producer called Nat who spent two weeks with me up in Chiang Rai province sort of chasing people down and getting some of the key interviews. Uh, Tin stayed in Bangkok and helped uh, by getting interviews but also by going to some conferences and seminars and stuff and, and translating sort of long uh, presentations given by key people which were, were that yielded quite a lot. And then uh, another friend, Am, up in northern Thailand, sort of helped uh, overseeing and giving some advice about who we should talk to when. 
And really, like the, the priority, the, the number one priority was to try to get to talk to the boys themselves. And how did you go? And, well, it wasn't easy. <laughs> it was not easy. It, it was made very difficult by um, the Thai government's understandable desire to protect the boys and their families from an intrusive media experience, which many of them had immediately afterwards. Right. They were, it was a bit of a cluster. Yeah. It, they, were, they were hunted down, basically, uh, immediately afterwards. And uh, in my opinion and in the opinion of others, and it's been reported in Thai media, it all got a little bit ugly. So we were pretty keen not to go down that path. Um, we had had some uh, established a relationship with uh, some of the family members um, during the reporting time. And we used that. We basically just just tried to sort of maintain friendships and, and build a relationship of trust and um, convince them that they should talk to us and and, 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 right. and, and tell the story uh, of what happened, uh, you know, to me. Because uh, that's the great untold story. You know, we, we know roughly how the rescue happened. We know who the sort of diving personnel were involved and we've heard a little bit from them. But what happened inside the cave? And... That's been fascinating to find out more about that. There's a range of things that I had no idea about at the time that I was reporting. You can elaborate <laughs> a bit more on that. <laughs> well, without, without giving, giving too, too much, much away. away. Yeah, exactly. I mean, to, to, to give you a, a, just a, a small example, you know, the, the whole time we thought that we had this, I had this, this mental image of these poor boys stuck in this dark, dank cave and it was going to be dark and miserable and that, that sort of blackness, that oppressive darkness would have been a, a horrible thing. Only to find out that, for a start, they had several torches and those torches lasted the entire time because they very Andy. cleverly rationed their light. They, right. they sort of suspected, they were pretty confident they'd be rescued uh, and they figured that it could take up to two weeks. Very oh, rational kind of uh, thinking. Yeah. And so they rationed their light accordingly. But kind of, I mean, somewhat humorously, on the, on the first night, they all bedded down, which basically meant lying down on the dirt, um, and turned their torches off, except for Note, who is the nickname of one of the boys, Note. His torch got jammed, and he couldn't turn it off. Right. And that stayed on for four to five days. Oh, interesting. So they weren't and stuck in this dark. In this dark yeah. I mean, yes, it was dark for a lot of the time, sure. but for the first four or five days, they had this constant source of light, uh, and and used that to move around within the cave, and that's something that I didn't understand properly at the time. I sort of thought that they basically moved from where they got stuck to where they got found, but actually, it was a series of staged moves that they made as the water kind of chased them backwards, basically as the, uh, the tunnels uh, filled up. Okay, mm. and I guess that kind of uh that light stopped them from panicking. Yeah, I think that and the, the reassuring presence of the coach. Um, Who, by all accounts, did a very good job. Yeah, absolutely. And, and early on, he copped some criticism, and there was even talk of charging him with negligence um, right. as the, the keyboard warriors got into the story uh, asserting their opinions. Armchair cowboys. Absolutely. Um, and the, the, the parents were great on that. They, they said, no, this, is, this coach has got nothing to answer for. You know, we don't yep. blame him at all. And they, they repeated that after they got out. Uh, and the coach, that, that was quite a lovely thing to learn about in researching the story, is the relationship between this young coach, he's 25 years old, 
uh, like three of the other boys, is a, a is stateless. He's not doesn't he didn't have um, official Thai citizenship, and uh, he just sounds like a fantastic young man. He he's basic he basically was devoutly Buddhist, loved his his soccer, his football, uh, and loved cycling, and and passed on some of those uh, passions to to the kids, and and this sort of this was a subgroup within the Wild Boars football team, right. which sort of has three different age groups. You know, I think it's under 13s, under 15s, and under 17s or 19s, something like that, three different age groups. But a group of boys from across those age groups mm-hmm. formed this very close kind of posse friendship, and they were, they were all good mates before the cave incident. And after football practice, they'd go out cycling, they'd go out um, you know, to swimming holes, they'd do these kind of extracurricular activities. And the parents all had great faith in the coach to look after them, get them back home afterwards, and uh, there was uh, great trust placed in him. And so he used some of his background as a, a former Buddhist monk. He was in a monastery for 10 years. So he encouraged the boys to, uh, to, to pray, to, to chant at night, to meditate. And I think that had a, a, a big impact on, on keeping them calm. Right, and, a, and keeping them busy. And instilling a sense of discipline mm. and having something to do. I mean, what do you do when you're almost in total darkness mm. and trapped underground for several weeks? And the answer is, dig. <laughs> what, 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 what lessons do you think there are in all this, particularly uh, given this type? We've, we've seen many international responses over the years to mm. big disasters, typhoons, earthquakes, um, refugees, uh, there there seems to be a system in place when something big happens. Mm. This wasn't kind of on, I mean, there were plenty of people there, no doubt, but it was kind of a microcosm in a very small area. Mm. Um, Do you think there are any lessons in there in terms of how to handle this type of disaster, which I think the logistics were totally different, highly precise, mm. required from all over the planet because not every country just has these things in stock, the mm. type of underwater kit you need to, and the training you need, mm. the, the types of divers you need. They mm. came from everywhere. Absolutely, and I think that is one of the key things to take away, like especially from, from a government sort of point of view, um, was the cooperation and the Thai government, to its credit, accepted the help uh, of other nations. One of the volunteer divers, a uh, diving instructor based in Thailand, is a Canadian guy, Eric Brown, who was involved in the rescue. He said to me that you've got to understand that it wasn't just that Thailand couldn't pull this rescue off on its own. It's pretty much no country could have pulled the rescue off on its own. Right. Perhaps except for the UK, because the cave diving rescue team that spearheaded the, the actual extraction, the key four or five divers were, were um, UK divers, and they're particularly skilled in this kind of diving through muddy, cold sumps, you know, right. very unpleasant, low visibility. Right, they're not uh, your average stuff. paddy diver. Absolutely not. Jumping off a boat. It's highly, highly specialised and, 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 and takes incredible calmness. And talking to these divers, they, they all, they're not exuberant guys. They're, right. They're not, they may, they may not be the life of the party, but they are the ones that you want coming down the cave to rescue you right. if you're in trouble because their, their determination, their calmness and their logical thinking is quite extraordinary. So I think the Thai government and military uh, eventually embracing that expertise was absolutely crucial to making it happen. 
and you know, diplomatically speaking, there were a few things importantly that went on in the background. The Australian um, anaesthetist, Dr. Richard Harris, and his dive buddy Craig Challen, um, both had diplomatic immunity, right? Because they didn't expect it to go well. You know, right. Everyone who was deeply involved in the rescue expected there to be dead kids. Right. Um, the number or the percentage chance uh, varies depending on who you asked. The American military leadership was talking about sort of 60-70% success rate was what they were hoping for. When Dr. Harry was asked, to the Australian um, doctor, he thought they had a 0% chance. Which is quite an amazing thing to put your career and your reputation yep. on the line and to sort of be bracing for the fact that you might be, you know, starting off with live kids and, and bringing out corpses. Right. It's harsh. Mm. I'm sure he was pleased he was wrong. Yeah, yep. I, and I think there was a, a sense of, not surprise, because they, they thought that if they did everything, if everything went right, they thought they would, you know, hopefully be successful. But there were so many things that could have gone wrong. And the, I mean, the, the life of those kids, basically, I mean, many people will know the basic, you know, methodology of how they got them out, but they, they, they completely knocked them out, um, mostly with, uh, with ketamine, and they were unconscious throughout the whole, um, you know, right. roughly three-hour procedure of diving them out, and then there was another hour or so to, to carry them out on a stretcher. But throughout the diving period, they, were, uh, they had a, a single uh, air canister, air tank strapped to their chest, and that was attached to a full-face mask. Um, which was used because your standard mask and regulator could be easily knocked out and right. it's, you just couldn't expect an unconscious person to, to continue breathing. It's a long time way. for a child to be in that sort of situation. It's a long time. Mm. I mean, most dives, uh, 30 minutes to an hour mm. to do that sort of thing with particularly that age mm. would be extraordinary. Absolutely, yeah. And, these, and impossible, I would imagine. Impossible, I think impossible. You know, yeah. And most of the divers said it would actually be impossible. Um, and... Uh, the, the, the real risk was that that full face mask got knocked in some way right. and would start to leak. Uh, and the divers swimming along in basically zero visibility, soupy, muddy water would have little idea that that was happening um, right in front of them as they held this kid to their chest and sort of swam along as best they could, you know, avoiding obstacles and bumping into things and using their body to protect the kid. Um, but if something happened to that mask, water leaked in, even a little bit of water, then the results could very yeah. easily have been fatal. And, and that's one of the reasons that they, they used normal compressed air uh, as you would for a, a, a usual scuba dive for um, the diving uh, rescuers. But for the kids, they used a, uh, a special blend of 80% uh, oxygen, uh, like an, an enriched high oxygen content. And the reason for that was really sobering. It was so that they were flooding the children's bodies with oxygen. So if something went wrong, they hoped it would give them a bit more time to resuscitate them. Right. Basically, they could be dead for longer and be brought back. Yeah, it's uh, quite a piece of science as mm. well as a piece of uh, rescue. Absolutely, yeah. And, and highly skilled. There's, it, Nothing, it's never been done before in this, in this situation. Uh, I think Dr. Harry recently said that t on two other occasions, people have been dived out of a, uh, rescued out of a, a flooded cave system. 
Um, but but never like this. Never children. Never unconscious. And it's over such a long period. Unprecedented. Of time. Um, I'd like to point out too that the book, uh, which is being published in Australia by Harper Collins, but it will be for international distribution. It's going to America. Europe. In fact, it's going everywhere where people followed this story. Uh, I hope so. It's certainly being published in America via Harper One. Um, and with a slightly uh, different title. It will be called Miracle in the Cave in America. And uh, in Australia? It'll be called The Cave. We like to keep it simple in Australia. <laughs> we're a bit like that. <laughs> um, and yeah, look, hopefully uh, we're still putting the fi final finishing touches uh, on various elements of it. And uh, it would be great if other um, uh, HarperCollins publishing branches picked it up around the world as well. Especially in the UK because of the strong um, UK presence and, and, and critical role that those guys played. Okay. Uh, on a final note, given that you mentioned the UK divers, um, I should ask, I mean, the, the, the most controversial aspect of the whole scenario was Elon Musk and mm. the words he had to say, which uh, I thought were dreadfully unkind and equally presumptuous in what he was saying and it was almost a little bit indicative of the negative stereotypes that uh, sometimes held about Thailand. Mm. What did you think? It was a, a very unpleasant uh, after, aftermath uh, from the rescue. I mean, the, what we're talking about, I mean, I can, I can say it only if I proceed it by the fact that there is no evidence to suggest that the allegations have any credibility whatsoever. Um, but uh, yeah, the billionaire inventor Elon Musk uh, accused one of the caving experts, Vernon Unsworth, of being a pedophile. Uh, with absolutely no evidence to back it up, it, it seemed like he was uh, angry and uh, bitter about um, not being involved. Not perhaps. being involved, yeah. Uh, so Elon Musk and his team tried to help in two ways. They had first idea was an inflatable tube, which they tried in a canal nearby, and it just it was never going to work because the cave was too jagged. It was going to puncture. The second um, better known idea was to have this sort of mini submarine torpedo thing, uh, and sort of put one of the kids inside that and, and, and jet them out. But that also was, was not going to work. And, and by the time they arrived with the device, which Elon Musk personally delivered to Thailand, it was the night of, the, of day two of the rescues. So they'd already got eight kids out successfully. Right. So I think quite wisely, uh, the uh, commander of the rescue, Narongsak Asatanakorn, said, don't worry about it, Elon. We've, we've got this. Thanks, um, but no thanks. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and it, it was it was an sounds unfortunate like a spat. It sounds like a dreadful uh, opportunist uh, in that we often see on big stories where people are positioning more for themselves than they are for the people whose lives are at risk. And I was left. I think a lot of people were left with that feeling that. Um, it was more, uh, Elon Musk was more about Elon Musk. Yeah, I think that, uh, that's something that's been expressed to me, that that's, that's how people felt about it. Um, and it, it's a real shame because there were a lot of people who played incredibly important roles, crucial roles, and Vern was one of them. Uh, you know, he, he lives up there in Maasai, and one of his passions is exploring caves, and in particular, this cave, Tamluang. He's, he's dedicated to try and to try and sort of explore this and, and find out where it goes. So he had this incredible knowledge in, just in his head of 
how the system operated, where the water might be coming from, what they could try, and sort of mapped it out for the divers. Without him, they would have been starting from a completely blank piece of paper. Instead, they started from a map and they sort of knew where they were going. And the chances of success obviously would have been not as great. Absolutely not, no. And uh, as I understand that there are still legal issues pending on that, so we'll see how that sort of pans out. But um, you know, Vern was one of the many who's contributed to this book, uh, as did his, uh, his wife, uh, who I should point out is in her let's say mid-40s, uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, certainly not underage in any way. Um, <laughs> All good. And, uh, yeah, so look, Vern was one of the key people. He, he hasn't talked to a lot of people, um, did, didn't have a very great experience with the media, I think, in, in, in some ways. And why but he was, he? he was gracious enough to, to give me some time and explain the, the goings-on of the cave, as did John Volenthan, one of the, um, yep. the key British divers, and that was probably, as well as the, the boys and their families, the other key thing um, that contributed so much to my book and and will hopefully um, you know put it in a different league to some of the other uh, stories that are told about this and and because mm -hmm. there are a lot of things that happen inside that cave that only half a dozen people know about because that's where it was and no one else was around and John was able to, to share some of those things and 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 set the record straight and things that I had wrong in my first draft completely uh, so also handy also very handy yeah uh, and on a final note um I was going to ask you what was the uh, most memorable moment of being involved with the whole rescue. Uh, the answer's probably a bit too obvious, so perhaps I'll ask you, what's your second favourite moment <laughs> of the entire... Well, what stands out? Apart from, obviously, obviously, there was the rescue of the children mm. as they came out, but mm. what else sticks in your mind? Well, I think... Uh, I'm going to go to the, the scene that I opened the book up with because obviously the, the feeling of elation as the, the, the last kids were rescued was just overwhelming and I got quite emotional on camera. Um, managed to just keep it together, but, but only just. But, but the way that I sort of start the book off is describing um, an encounter we had with, our first encounter with one of the boys um, whose name is Bill. And uh, we'd become friends with Bill's dad, Suck who invited us around to the house. And uh, this was two days after they'd been released from hospital. And we sat there with the family, sitting on mats, eating food, and Bill was just talking about what happened inside the cave. And it was the first time that he had spoken in detail to his family about what had happened. His father didn't know the details that he was sharing with us. And, to be there and to be part of this extremely intimate family moment, hearing this, this story from this boy who I've been talking about for the last three weeks, and, and, and here he was, telling his story himself. It was incredible. That's sweet. Anyway, Liam, thank you for your time. Uh, the Cave will be out in Australia uh, by Christmas, and sure. the miracle in the Cave will be available in America shortly. And early January. Early January and around the world. Liam Cochran, thank you very much. Luke, Sounds like very an much. extraordinary story. Thank you very much.